I'm really excited about today's sermon because I love it when God just gives you more from a passage than you've ever had before. Like you just see it deeper. And um, something I notice is that sometimes some of the things that I know and have read or, you know, uh, there's like fragmentary truth sometimes. And then when you get the whole context, it's like, wow. It was, it was impressive. It was something that really spoke to me before, but now I can see the big picture. And this is one of those, one of those times. So let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the scriptures that you preserve for us. And I thank you that they are good, that they are trustworthy, they are useful for equipping the man or woman of God for every good work. Lord, no one has ever been a believer in this century, in this time, we are relying on your Holy Spirit to help us to translate your word so that we can understand it and apply it to our lives so we might be changed. So bless this, this sermon, God, and let us hear from you through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are, we are in the parables uh, sermon series, and I'm doing two parables today. The parable of the wandering sheep and the parable of the unmerciful servant from Matthew 18. But to, to contextualize those, we're going to read the entire Matthew 18. Um, so we're going, it's going to be uh, pretty interesting. So last week we talked about the parable of Jesus that, where he said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds, but it grows into a, a big invasive plant that takes over the garden. That's what the kingdom of God is like. A small seed that becomes a big shrub that's like, that much like a weed will just take over, take over, and it's hard to get rid of even. The kingdom of God has grown throughout history despite great opposition, which is one of those things that really... Uh, shows you that Jesus is behind it. The Holy Spirit is moving and working. So that's the kingdom of God. It's, it's, a, it's like a mustard seed. We also do the parable of the, of the growing seed, where an unnamed man, a farmer, scatters seeds of the kingdom of Christ. Um, that's, what, that's what the symbols mean. And something amazing happens. You know, very slowly, uh, almost imperceptibly, day in, day out, as the man sleeps and wakes up and goes about his business, all by itself, the seed sprouts. It grows. And it says in our text last week, and the man does not know how. Just the mystery. How is this growth happening? It says the soil produced grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full corner, cor- kernel in the head. So we are encouraged that the work of God's kingdom is, it's automatic. Like when God's kingdom is planted and it's moving, it moves forward. With or without us, the kingdom of God is going. Uh, we want to be a part of it, but um, it's not dependent on us. It's God who makes it grow. It's very similar to other messages in the Bible that, you know, some people water, some people plant, but it's God who makes them grow. Unless the Lord builds it and grows it, it doesn't, doesn't work. But the growth is God's work. So this is the message of that parable is, you know, we are fully reliant on God, you know, whether we realize it or not, in this venture we call the church, which, is, which should give us comfort, but also amaze us, you know, it just keeps growing um, despite opposition. But also, that, that parable humbles us because we know that this is the Lord's work and we have to submit to him and resist the urge to, to justify ourselves, justify our church, justify our lives in the eyes of other people by comparing ourselves to other people or, or by uh, any of the ways that we tend to do that. We, it humbles us. And, and humility about the kingdom of God is, is like a magnet. If you look in the stories of Christ in the, in the Gospels, you know, people that came to him in humility... You know, he, he granted their requests. He, he, he met them where they were at. Um, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
So, uh, you know, we, we are, our lives are the soils. God is the farmer. We can only control our soil. You know, in our first parable, we saw, um, you know, we need God. We need his, his presence, his spirit, um, and we can miss out on it uh, when we make it about us in our pride. But we desperately need God. This is all about God. The kingdom of God is, is not our work, the growth of the kingdom. That's God's work. But we can stand in the way. You know, that's, that's one of the messages. Uh, with our pride and sin being hard, rocky, or our thorny soil that doesn't take in the seed, doesn't produce a crop. And, you, and we can miss out as individuals, as, as a church, on the kingdom work that God is doing. So it's all about the so- looking at the soil of our lives and making sure that we are a place uh, where God uh, can, can move and work and there's not sin and gunk in the way, either in ourselves or in our relationships in the body of Christ. It says in Hebrews 3, 12, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of, us, none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. That's like the soil's going bad. See to it, this doesn't happen. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, become that hard soil. So we look out for ourselves and our own soil. We look out for each other. And that verse is a warning that um, though God's growth in his kingdom is, is, is his work, it's almost automatic and mysterious. Very easily when we develop sinful and unbelieving hearts, we can get in the way of that. We can miss out. In our heart, and we can become hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So, you know, when pride and sin take root, you know, we can miss out. And God's enemy wants nothing more than one Christian's sin to become out of control in their lives and then collide with somebody else in the church and cause damage, damage, damage. Think about it, you know, as far as uh, through the relationships of the church. And I, and I think about it kind of like, uh, like with your own body. You know, I have a bad knee. My right knee is, has no meniscus in it. Because when I was 18, I injured myself. And at the time, surgeons just said, well, just cut the whole thing out instead of repairing it. They don't really do that as much anymore. But uh, the doctor told me, the surgeon told me at 18 years old, in 20 years, you will have arthritis in your knee and you will need to have a knee replacement someday, which is a pretty depressing thing for an 18-year-old kid to hear. Um, But because of that injury, you know, my body uh, has overcompensated and sometimes I strain my good knee uh, and bring my body out of alignment because of that injury, right? And that's what happens in the body of Christ when we become proud, when we devalue one another, when sin takes root in our own lives or in in our relationships. We sin against one another. We don't follow God's prescription for restoration and redemption. You know, God makes this this kingdom grow, but we can certainly get in the way of that. And that's what Matthew 18 is all about. So we're going to see, like like I said, the two parables, but for context, I, I realized we just need to read the entire chapter together. So we're going to do that this morning. So we're going to be in um, Matthew 18, starting in the first verse. So at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the little child to himself and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. You know, the the disciples were fixated on this idea of greatness, which is why they asked the question. You know, how does one become great in the kingdom of God? 
And when you think about that, depending on the heart of the person, that's not necessarily a bad question to ask. We want, to, we want our lives to matter for God. We want to be great for God. But undoubtedly, as evidenced by Jesus' response, in this case, the disciples had in their mind more worldly ideas of greatness than spiritual ones, about power, about authority, about you know, being top dog, if you will. So all Jesus, uh, all Jesus had in mind when he talked about becoming like a child was this idea of, of being a humble person who simply depends on God for everything. You know, that's what a child is like. And Jesus calls to a little child in the crowd. He, he brings a child to himself, and he said, here's, here's greatness. Become like a little child. Imagine that as an object lesson, him holding this child and preaching with this child being his text, if you will. You know, the Greek word for the little child here means like a toddler, like a young boy or girl. Um, a child in intellect, a child in emotion. And, and when we see a child like that, we, and we hear him say, become like a child, you must change and become like a child to enter my kingdom. You know, we all kind of get a sense of what he's saying. You know, children are awesome. Children are really awesome. Um, the other day, my heart was so softened uh, as I watched my, my seven-year-old son help his five-year-old sister with a workbook she was doing, um, and she was learning patterns. And so I, I just was listening in the other room, and I kind of snuck in, and they didn't really see me. So big brother said, sun, clouds, rain, sun, clouds, rain, sun, clouds. What's next, Naomi? She goes, sun? He goes, no, Naomi. Sun, clouds, rain, sun, clouds. She goes, rain. And he goes, great, great job, Naomi. And I, that was a good interaction. Obviously, kids are not always like that. So it's, very, it's extremely heartwarming when you see those moments. But just, just to see, a see how children are in their nature. You know, I love seeing kids' interests flourish. You know, anytime a kid comes near my office, I put an instrument in their hand. I want to see what they're going to do with it. You know, I love music. And uh, I love how kids already think they are proficient at things before they learn anything or practice. Like, it's just awesome. Like, how cool is that? You know, we lose that confidence completely as adults pretty much and have to rebuild it. But if we could hold on to a little bit of that, it might be nice, right? Um, but being a rock star, just holding a guitar for the first time is how kids see themselves. You know, kids take what the adults around them say utterly seriously. They're not cynical by nature, but accepting. And, and we love that. When we see Jesus holding this kid, we know kind of what he means when he says, become like a child. You must convert, you must change and become like a child. Um, kids, we know, are, are, not, are not perfect. You know, they have that dark side that we all have. And they learn to sin personally and sin against other people at a young age and against each other, sometimes violently so, just like we do. But overall, you know, kids are humble, receptive, they're sweet, they depend on their parents for just about everything, and they're really somewhat helpless without help and reliant on their parents' word and protection. Uh, that, that's what a child is. So, I, so when the disciples ask Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he picks up this little toddler. You know, his answer was that unless you convert, unless you change and become like a little child, like this little child, you'll never enter the kingdom. And holding that sweet little toddler, Jesus says, in verse 4, Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me. And we kind of, 
We'd like Jesus to give us a checklist. What does it mean exactly to be like a child? But we get, we get the idea. We can make the, we can make the uh, translation here. You know, maybe we've been adulting too much in our personal lives and in our faith and as a church. You know, concerned about too many things and overcomplicating the simplicity of coming to God like a child. You know, Jesus is not calling us to be unintelligent or, or, or to be undeveloped. He's calling us to have the posture of a child. He wants us to change, accept him as our father and savior, just like a child, rely on him for our salvation and other needs, our protection. You know, he wants us to be overjoyed and excited and delighted at what he does in his kingdom. And in, in worship times like this, he wants us to love him. He just wants to be with us. He wants us to come to him and get lost in worship of our Father. So like that amazed farmer from last week's parable, um, you know, these, he plants these seeds. They bud and they grow. And the kingdom of God is just this, this delight. And God wants us to be delighted in his work and in him as he brings it. So Jesus says, first step, to greatness, um, to get into his kingdom. You need to convert. You need to change and become dependent like a child who depends on his parents for everything. In our case, our loving father. So Jesus continues to, to, to hold this child as he continues to teach. And he brings us to the next uh, teaching in verse 6. So holding this child, Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me, to stumble. It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. You know, if you haven't read this before, or haven't thought about it, or, or looked at this before, it, it's shocking. The idea of, of being maimed, or the idea of a millstone hung around someone's neck and throwing them into the depths of the sea. These are shocking and troubling images, and they were meant to be shocking and troubling images. You know, this is something that Jesus is taking utterly seriously and trying to help us to come alongside him and say, we take it seriously too. This is an important point Jesus is making. You know, if anyone causes one of these, one of these uh, people that has faith like a child, who's just coming to God as they are, if anyone causes those person to stumble, it's a severe problem. It would be better for, that, for the person that causes that to be, dealt, to be punished in a terrible way. You know, a lot of what we're looking at in, in Matthew 18 is about relationships. It's about how relationships need to be navigated in the kingdom of God and how to deal with our sin and our brokenness when it comes up, which it does all the time. So right up front, you know, Jesus is giving his followers this great, great value. When you come to Christ, he gives you, he, you're already valuable as a creature made in his image, but when you come to Jesus' kingdom through, through simple faith and acceptance, you become God's kid. You become his child. Adopted. And God is not okay at all when one of his children treat others of his children in ways that do not reflect the value that he holds for each of them. And this is what I tell my children. I say, 
know, whoever is being, you know, bullied or hurt or whatever, you know, I'm going to be going to that kid's defense because, you know, that, that, that person is, um, is one of my kids who I love is hurting another kid who I love, right? So whoever is doing the hurting is going to get in trouble and the other one's going to be comforted. Um, you got to work, we'll look out for the victim problems and all that, but, um, it's, it's tricky, but, you know, God feels the same way about his kids. When one person causes another person to stumble, it's, it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. God has such a high value on his kids. So Jesus, addressing his disciples, says, if anyone causes one of his kids who believe in him to stumble, it would be better to be executed in this horrifying way um, through tying a large millstone around the neck and throwing someone into the sea. What does it mean to cause someone to stumble? I, I looked up the, the word in my, in my dictionary, in my Greek dictionary. This means to put a stumbling block or an impediment in the way upon which another person may trip and fall. To offend, to entice, to sin. To cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. And the person there would be God. To cause someone to fall away, to be offended in one, to see in another what I disapprove of and hinders me from acknowledging God's authority. To cause one to judge unfavorably or unjustly of another. You know, these are the things that cause people to stumble. And the Bible conversely says that we are to encourage one another daily, as long as we are alive, to have iron sharpen iron and not to cause someone to stumble. So much of the Bible in the New Testament is taken up with Paul trying to figure out, trying to translate the law of the Old Testament into the New Covenant of the New Testament. And he, there's rules about various things that are meant to keep other people from stumbling. You know, when Gentiles came to faith for the first time, they didn't drop the Torah in their lap, the Jewish Bible, and say, obey all the rules. They prayed about it, and they said, here's the three things you should focus on. They didn't want those people to stumble, and like to be excited about Jesus, to spring up quickly, if you think about the, the four soils, and then to be discouraged by someone dropping a big, heavy black Bible on them, right? Um, there's sensitivity there. And, uh, and, and Paul was always working to, to make sure that the people that he was leading in his church were thinking outside of themselves, not selfishly, but thinking, what is good for this person? How can I encourage them? And then, of course, how can I keep them from stumbling? You know, when you discourage a brother or sister in Christ and cause them to doubt or even lose their faith in God. That's a truly horrible thing. It's a terrible thing to be on the other end of, too. Have you ever been discouraged by a, uh, you know, a gung-ho Christian that was trying to help you, maybe? But, been, but ended up being discouraged by it. You lose your passion. When I first came to Saving Faith in Christ, when I was 18, I was extremely enthusiastic about God. And very, you know, in, in my excitement about the kingdom and, and, and my dependence on God for my salvation, you know, I felt so set free. I was excited. And I read whatever I could get my hands on as far as Christian books went. And I studied the Bible and read the Bible. I talked about faith in, with Jesus with my friends and family. I was very excited and growing. And I think back on those days very fondly. Then a, a concerned brother in Christ laid the smack down on me. And, uh, the brother did not approve of one of the books I had read, which had been probably the most life-giving book outside of the Bible at the time that I had read. And uh, this brother printed out 
a bunch of stuff off the internet about how this vibrant book that had given me so much life was off base and that the author was a heretic and it was a wolf deceiving people. And all of a sudden I was thrown into a tailspin, you know? I, I became anxious and grieved and sad and it caused me to question if I was experiencing something real in my conversion. It actually made me doubt the work of God and his spirit in my life. I had this like lump in my throat and sickness in my stomach and that old cynicism about God that characterized my life before my conversion came back and hit me like a ton of bricks. Now, maybe God didn't really love me. Maybe I was unlovable. Maybe I'm just a worm after all in God's sight. Maybe God is displeased with me. Maybe he can't be pleased. Maybe the cross isn't enough for me. These are the kind of things that discouragement can do to somebody, especially someone that that's, has faith like a child. We have to steward our brothers and sisters in Christ to ensure that we encourage them and don't discourage them. It doesn't mean that we agree with every single thing they say and do, and that book, of course, had its flaws. Sure. There is a place for analyzing theology, deciding which books are better and which books are best, knowing that the only book that can truly be trusted is the Bible in the end. But when we carelessly discourage the faith of others to beat our own drum, you know, when we discourage the childlike faith in people around us, keeping people from depending on God fully. You know, it's a terrible thing. So this is something that we just need to think about in our fellowship with one another. How do we encourage? When people come to New Life and come to Christ for the first time, how do we encourage them and not crush them? How do we put logs on that fire and, and, and so they can burn hotter? You know, God's kingdom is going to grow in that person. We don't have to control that person's growth. God's going to do it. We're there to encourage. And there's so much discouragement in the world today. And well, Jesus took it even more seriously than I'm talking about. He said, you know, this, this horrifying death of having a millstone tied around your neck and being thrown in the sea would be better than doing that. That's what Jesus said. It's, it's, it's a punishment that's just shocking and cruel, even to people in Jesus' day. It was, it was just a horrifying thought. And Jesus says, this is the way that we should feel about the possibility of damaging a fellow believer in Christ. You know, we need to discern, yes, pray, and always seek to encourage and build people up in Christ. But Jesus' warning goes out to both parties, you know, both the childlike Christian who's been made to stumble and the one that causes them to stumble. And then in verse 7 it says, Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter the life maimed and crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Now, we've heard this passage before, so it's, it, it, for some of us it's lost its shock value, but once again, just as severe and, and disgusting as the thought of cutting off a body part and throwing it away, it's like a horror film to think about that, Jesus says we should be disgusted and horrified by our own sin to the extent that we deal with it decisively and thoroughly. You know, this... Not causing other people to stumble is one thing, and that's a terrible thing to cause people to stumble. But when you yourself are stumbling, we need to take that super seriously too. You know, Rob Reimer says, if we do not deal with sin uh, completely, it will deal with us. You know, thoroughly it will deal with us. It will, it, will, it will really damage us in the long haul. You know, allowing sin to stay in your life and, and grow is, is a terrible, nasty thing akin to chopping off a body part. It's horrifying. It doesn't bother us. 
but we should think about how it should bother us because we are making ourselves stumble through entertaining these things. So Jesus said it would be better to, to chop off the offending body part. Now we know that's a hyperbole. We all have our body parts in this room for the most part. Um, if, we, if we followed Jesus' advice literally, we would not be here because we have no body parts left because we have so much struggle with sin in our lives, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But what Jesus is saying is, deal severely with sin before it deals severely with you. You know, your, your sin left unchecked, uh, which is rooted usually in pride, will eventually not only destroy you, but will infect your brothers and sisters in Christ and discourage them and destroy their faith. So just be careful. None of us is beyond, no matter how mature you think someone is in Christ, no one is beyond these pitfalls, you know. And Jesus concludes saying, um, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, still holding this baby. For I tell you, their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now that's a pretty interesting little, little verse in the midst of the passage. You know, if, if children and childlike kingdom people are served by God's mighty angels, which when you read about them in the Bible, it's quite a majestic thing. You know, how dare do we crush or discourage the faith of one of these little ones? The angels are attending to them. Why, why, would we, um, why would we crush them? Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? You know, that's saying that, you know, I know touched by an angel, an angel, angel insanity in the 80s and 90s on television, angels, angels, angels. But there is a theology of angels. There are angels watching over children that see the face of God. And God's mighty angels serve God's children in God's kingdom. All of us are being served by God's angels. And so if even these, these mysterious and incredible beings, who if you saw one, you would be tempted to worship it because it would just... Even if, if God sends those to watch over and minister to us, you know, how valuable are we in God's sight? You know, he's saying we're very valuable. These kids, don't cause yourself to stumble or someone else to stumble because you're very valuable. So Jesus wants us to deal with sin in our own lives and to make every effort not to make a brother or sister stumble because of the huge value that he has placed in each of us as his image bearers, all made in the image of Christ, as his redeemed and beloved children, as people of his kingdom who, who are just growing because of God's work in their lives, apart from anything else that we do. To show us just how valuable we really are in God's eyes, Jesus now shares the first parable from our passage. He says, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and then one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. One way to read this is to say, you know, Jesus, Jesus loves each of us so much that he, he would leave the 99 to go find the one. That's, an, that's 1% is enough for Jesus to leave the 99 and find the one. That's enough for Jesus. That's a testament to the heart of God and his love for his children. The parable makes little sense to us, and maybe that's the point. Maybe it's not logical. But another way to read it is, you know, 
Most shepherds in Jesus' day were hired men, hired by wealthy um, sheep owners, and they watched the flocks of other people. So when the shepherd was responsible for a flock of, we'll say, 100 sheep, if something should happen to one of those sheep, whether it be killed by a wild animal or lost, that shepherd had to pay from his own pocket to replace that animal. So a farmer, a, 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 a shepherd, very you know, poor, tending a rich person's sheep, you know, losing a sheep or two could really be financial ruin to that guy. So when the shepherd finds the lost sheep, think of the joy and the anxiety that would lift off his, off his heart. You know, imagine that uh, how they how how he'd be concerned. If I can't find the sheep, I'm not going to be able to feed my family. If I don't find the sheep, I'm going to lose money. I'm not going to be able to do what I need to do. So imagine that feeling, and then imagine the relief. Oh, it's just behind the boulder. Thank goodness. And the 99 are still there. Yep. Okay. Good. The relief to find that sheep and to rejoin it to the flock, like finding a kid lost in a grocery store. Right. Oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness they're not gone. So one way to read this parable is in the same way that a hired hand would rejoice to find that lost sheep. So Jesus rejoices in that same way in his flock of little ones. You know, God is the owner of the flock. God loves his sheep. God rejoices when just 1%, 1 out of 99, who is lost becomes found. And it says in our passage, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to saving faith and become like children and follow him to salvation. It is not God's will that any should perish. He leaves the 99 to find the one. It's really a, a beautiful sight. So Jesus is, is dead serious about certain things, about relational problems, about, um, about, about these things in the kingdom and sin because he loves us and values us so much. Just like a parent would be upset when their kids start fighting each other and hurting each other, God is just dead serious about this thing. So, to, re to review, just as we get into the, the middle part of this passage, to be great or even enter the kingdom of God, we must become like little children, dependent on God in simple faith and trust. And God is so serious about this that he says it would be better to be executed in this horrifying way than to cause one of these little ones who believe in him to stumble. And the Father is not willing that any should perish, so he warns us to deal seriously with sin in our lives before it robs us of our faith. And all of this is because of the value that God's given us as his image bearers and as those who have been adopted into his family through Jesus Christ. So that, the heart of Christ is also what leads us into this next teaching, which deals about, which, which uh, gives real um, procedure for how to deal with sin in the church when someone sins against another person. You know, all of that framing is to um, talk about this very important topic. When someone sins against us, hurts us, offends us, you know, we tend to want to avoid conflict by just saying, you know, I'm just going to forgive this person in my heart and move on. You know, they hurt me. I'm just going to be a good Christian. I'm going to forgive them, give them grace, and move on. I'm not going to talk about it. You know, sometimes some things can be overlooked that are not very important. Maybe it's just a preference we had. No, they played the wrong song on worship team. I'm mad at Becca now. I don't, you can overlook that. That's not really offensive. That's a preference. But when someone really sins against another person, 
know, there's a procedure that we need to go through. Otherwise, we're going to be stuffing and building up relational damage in the church. The sin and the problem do not go away because we say, I forgive them in our heart. We might tell ourselves that we're fine, but there's something broken in the body of Christ when we don't talk to that person. We want that person to come to us and just apologize. We know that's not going to happen, so we say we're fine. And our, our own brokenness begets more brokenness and relational damage. You see that person on a Sunday morning and you just have a different feeling about them, you know? We are commanded by Jesus Christ to deal seriously with sin and hurt in the church and not just gloss over it. Not just between me and God saying, I forgive them, but talking to them. So he says in verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Um, That's the first step. If someone sins against you, point it out to them. I mean, you've been hurt. You've been damage from them. And it's just between the two of you. You just go up to them. No one else is involved. There's no gossip or preamble to this. You just go to that person. And the, the best case scenario is that person is cut to the heart and says, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize. But yes, I see that's true. I'm so sorry. And they are back to being brother and sister in Christ. No problem. The first step is just to point it out. The hope is that the person uh, will, will repent and that, that you will be reconciled. The whole goal is restoration. That's what the goal is. Not to make anyone feel bad, but true restoration that can't be done through unilateral forgiveness and overlooking all the time. But maybe this first step, in this first step, you know, the person does not see that they sinned against you. And they do not have the humility or love in their hearts to, to repent. So they're not, they're not repenting. They're not even really listening to you. They're defending themselves. And so Jesus says, next comes step two. And step two is a great step because it helps keep the person who's been offended or hurt or sinned against in check, as well as making sure that the person that's listening to them um, hears what they have to say. It says, if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So when someone does not become reconciled and restored in a relationship, you take in one or two people who are godly and trusted, and preferably by both parties, that they're not on your side. They're not there to gang up on somebody. They're people that are godly, that are loving, that love both parties, and that can hear both parties in a more objective way. So what you're doing is bringing in these witnesses that can speak into both of your lives, both the offended and the the offensive party, uh, help you see your blind spots. But the real principle is, from Deuteronomy 19, which says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So this is, this is wise counsel. It keeps people in, in check, humble, accountable to the truth. But sometimes even that step does not work. And then Jesus commands us to go to level three. He says, if they still refuse to listen, you tell it to the church. If they are unrepentant of their sin and are not taking it seriously enough to repent and make it right, if the two witnesses have agreed that this is a a sin and an offense and that needs to be resolved, it's time to bring in the rest of the church body uh, 
through talking to the elders of the church, the leaders of the church first, uh, and seeking wisdom. And so that's for the protection of the sheep, to keep people from, from stumbling around you. And it's a serious step, taken very seriously, and it's not easy for anybody to do. Not easy for anybody to do. Jesus goes on and says, And if they refuse to listen, even to the elders and the people of the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That doesn't sound so bad because, I mean, Jesus was a friend of sinners and pagans and tax collectors, right? No one is saying that and advising the people in the church act hatefully or scornfully towards a person who didn't repent of their sin. Instead, it's recognized corporately there's an unrepentant sin and hurt is in the camp. And the offending party cannot be fully trusted and embraced and fully until they deal with their sin through repentance. And God's goal, again, is still restoration. And he doesn't desire that any should perish. Any of these people involved, they're also valuable. And that's why this very severe action is being prescribed. You know, the hope is that the offending party will be inspired through longing to be a trusted part of the body once again and come to repent of their sin. None of that sounds easy, you know, especially for, for us Christians that are supposed to be childlike, compassionate, and loving. This is not easy for many of us. Actually, it sounds brutal to me to have to go through that. So Jesus, knowing this, offers encouragement, saying, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything, they ask. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. So, so when a church has to go all the way in these steps of dealing with sin in the camp, the leaders of the church and the church at large can go about that delicate and painful task in confidence because it says God is with them. As long as God's steps of reconciliation are followed in humility, God himself backs up the difficult task the church has to do in his heavenly realm. So when someone is at the very end of church discipline, that, that final step, and is being treated as if they were an outsider to the faith, God binds this in heaven, and then when that person um, who, who no one wants to see perish, and Jesus doesn't want to see perish, when that person repents and is restored to the, to the church, um, God looses that person from the discipline in heaven as well. Interesting thought, right? God is behind when the procedures are followed, and God is so committed to this process, dead serious about it, he is behind the church when they follow this in a godly way, and he ratifies the decision of the people. God is with us in the process, and I think that for many of us, we need to hear and know he's with us in order to have the confidence to move forward in this very difficult path. But truly, truly, I say unto you, these days, people will often leave the church and try to join another one instead of repenting of their sin. And that's, that's not okay, you know? When a church body has disciplined a person all the way through, um, even though the person might skip town and go to another church, if that sin and brokenness is not resolved, I do not know if God has loosed that person in heaven. And that's a scary thought. Think about uh, the Lord's Prayer. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's a scary thought. It's a serious thing. What if someone skips church, goes to a different church where no one knows them in a different state, different county, uh, and, and God still has not loosed that person because they have not dealt with their sin? What does that mean? 
I just hope, I would hope it would never come to that, you know? I mean, I feel like in my life, whenever I've had to do this Matthew 18 thing, it's usually resolved in the first step. Sometimes it's resolved in the second step. I've never gotten to this extreme level. But Jesus takes it dead serious because he loves the church. He doesn't desire that any should perish, either the sinner or the one that's sinned against. That's what it's all about, restoration. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. So dealing with someone who sins against you in the church, just you two, no one else, let them know their offense. Step two, if they don't listen, bring one or two others to witness and counsel. No one else is involved, no gossip, none of that garbage. Third, you bring it to the elders of the church. And if they still won't listen to the whole church talking to them, and everyone in this, let's say it's a church of 100, and everyone agrees, this is a sin, you need to repent of this. And they're still like, no, I never repent of this. And then you treat them like an outsider. But the goal, even as an outsider, is restoration. You can't just... For, for when you are really sinned against, you can't just forgive someone in your heart and move on. There's always going to be a problem there. And if this didn't do anything to move our hearts, Jesus drives the point home with the final parable, which we're going to finish with today. The parable of the unmerciful servant. So Peter's been listening to Jesus' teaching, and he wants to, talk about, he wants to contribute to this conversation about forgiveness Jesus is sharing. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Other, other, other parallel accounts in other Gospels say 70 times seven. So Jewish people, of whom Jesus was a part and, the, and his followers were a part, had a tradition of forgiving people up to three times. Three strikes, three out kind of thing. So Peter is feeling very generous when he contributes this to the conversation. He says we're going to say up to seven times. Seven's a godly number. And to him that feels like a high number, you know? But Jesus replies that we should forgive not seven, but 77, seven, 70 times seven. It's another way of Jesus saying in a matter of speaking that you're to forgive them to infinity. It's a, and to illustrate this idea, he tells the last parable illustrate this idea of forgiving someone to infinity. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children all, that all of them be sold to repay the debt. So 10,000 bags of gold. What is that? How many dollars is that? Does anyone know? That's 10,000 talents. And to give you an idea of how much money that is, the, the entire revenue of Herod's kingdom at the time of Jesus was 900 talents a year. That was the revenue of the entire kingdom. So we're talking about 11 times the revenue of the entire kingdom where Jesus was. It's a ridiculous number that no one would believe the person could ever repay. Probably people laughed when he told this story. This is too high an amount for anyone to ever even hope to repay. It's impossible. And Jesus is making a point to Peter about the forgiveness that God gives to his people, who repent and expect from others. And, and from God, who, who uh, forgives those who repent and expects to forgive others in the same way. We're supposed to repent and forgive 70 times 7. You know, unlimited. So at that, at that word, the servant fell on his knees before the king, and he said, be patient with me, I beg you, and I will pay you back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, canceled the debt, 11 times the revenue of the kingdom and let him go. You know, the servant is very optimistic. He's, he's begging. 
be patient with me. I'll pay off the debt. He thinks he can pay everything, it says. And it's very pitiful. It's impossible. And something amazing happens. You know, the master feels compassion on him. And that word for compassion is the same word that's used when Jesus' heart went out to people who he ministered to in his ministry, that compassion of the king. His heart melted within him, and seeing this humbled man begging for forgiveness, he doesn't demand repayment. It says he canceled the debt, the entire thing. But the story doesn't end there, unfortunately. But when that servant went out, he found, out, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him. In the same way he used these same words, be patient with me, I will pay it back. Now, a hundred silver coins was just four months of wages for a day laborer. And that's a lot of money. But it's not anything compared to that infinity debt that the man had been forgiven of by the king. Now this, this man is standing before this, the other servant, begging in the same way that that servant had just been begging at the feet of the king. It says in verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. R.C. Sproul said, First, the servant was threatened with justice by the king, but he received incalculable mercy. But he despised the mercy and grace of the king, and in despising that mercy, he got justice. Now, that's a lesson for us. And Jesus concludes his story saying, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. Now this... This is a warning. This is a serious business. God, we have such a value in God's eyes. His body has so much value to him. When we entertain sin or sin against other people, it's a serious matter. It needs to be processed. It needs to be um, gone through these steps of reconciliation. And when someone is truly repentant, that person needs to be forgiven. And in light of the forgiveness of God, that person needs to be forgiven. And the goal is restoration in Christ's body of the church. You know, God is not willing that any should perish, our passage says today. He rejoices at the 1% of sheep who are restored to the flock. So if they confess and repent after you've spoken to a person privately, you, you really must extend forgiveness from the heart and cancel the debt that you have against them. Just like the master in the parable did. And if you refuse to forgive, according to Jesus, you are a hypocrite because God has canceled your debt, which was much larger when you came to him for mercy. And because we are a people who are forgiven, not offering that same forgiveness to others is the height of pride and hypocrisy. So if, we ha if we have been redeemed, we should reflect the redemption and the restoration through passing it on willingly to others who have sinned against us. So as the worship team comes, we're going to close in a song. I just wanted to, wanted to go over this passage in a big aerial view. 
To enter God's kingdom, we must become like little children, trusting the Father with simple faith. When we frustrate and cause a fellow believer to stumble, it's indeed a terrible thing. Robbing them of their faith, gifting them with cynicism and despair, poison gifts. It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck. And not only others, when sin affects us and begins to rob us of our faith, cause us to stumble, we must take it seriously enough to deal with it in a severe way. Now, sin should be just as horrifying as the thought of chopping off a body part. Now, God wants to restore his sheep to their flock. God's heart in all of this serious talk and dealing with sin is restoration, always restoration. And God rejoices when restoration happens. And he rejoices when he finds the one who is lost and wandering. So when, because God's heart is for restoration, when a fellow Christian sins against us, we must follow the process. We must not just forgive them and move on in our own heads. If they've really sinned against us, talk to them. If it doesn't work, bring one or two others and then bring it to the leaders of the church. And when a person repents of their sin from the heart, we are to cancel the debt they have with us and forgive them and restore them to fellowship. Now, forgiveness does not mean being walked over or necessarily trusting that person in the same way right away. Maybe never. Now, that's a process. But we must not hold the debt of sin against them. We must forgive that debt when they repent. Because when we don't do that, we run the risk of getting justice ourselves for the debt that God has canceled in our own lives, which is why the scriptures say, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's, it's just connected. It's connected. God's heart in all of this is to shepherd his flock. And as we walk out of these difficult truths in community, when two or more are gathered, God is with us. He's backing us up. He's helping us and giving us grace so we can be restored. Let's worship the Lord together.